0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A national report from the Alzheimer's Association finds that caregivers are facing financial strain as part of their decision to take care of their loved ones. Caregiving affects the number of hours they can work, and the financial consequences are deepened when they're forced to use their own money to pay for services that aren't covered by Medicare. Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or C-HIT, looked into the prevalence of Alzheimer's in our state and the realities facing caregivers. We'll talk with the reporter about what she uncovered. Coming up, we'll hear from caregivers themselves and find out about the support they receive. With recent budget cuts, is the state providing caregivers adequate assistance? And later, we'll talk with a cognitive neuroscientist about ways caregivers can fulfill their role without negatively impacting their own health. Are you a caregiver for a spouse or relative with Alzheimer's or other dementias? We want to hear from you. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash live and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where we live. Joining me by phone now is Kara Rosner, a reporter for Connecticut Health Investigative Team at CHIT.org. Hi, Kara.
1: Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for
0: coming on. Tell us how prevalent is Alzheimer's and other dementias in Connecticut.
1: In Connecticut, it's actually more prevalent than almost every other state in the country. Um, A recent study by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services found that just under 12%, 11.9% of Medicare beneficiaries in Connecticut have Alzheimer's or another form of dementia, and only Texas, which came in at 12% even, had a higher percentage than Connecticut does.
0: And with our older population, so anyone um, 65 and older um, is considered in that target range for Alzheimer's?
1: Yep, exactly. And actually, that's one of the key reasons why experts think that Connecticut has such a high prevalence is because of our aging population population. About a year ago in July 2015, the census estimated that 16% of the state's population is age 65 or older, which, as you mentioned, is kind of the key demographic that um, Alzheimer's and dementia is impacting.
0: Um, So who cares for the majority of them? Are they in nursing homes or other long-term care facilities, or are they uh, cared for by mostly caregivers at home?
1: What I have found in my reporting is that there are a decent number, especially in the later stages, who need, if not in-home care, they're getting facility-based care, but a lot of people are really trying to care for their loved ones at home as much as possible, both to keep them, you know, actively engaged in their typical daily life and also to save some expenses because um, the the cost of in-home and facility-based care is just really astronomical for a lot of families.
0: Let's talk about the cost, because your recent story um, uncovered that you know for people that are dependent on Medicare, yep. um, oftentimes there are treatments and services that aren't covered. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, exactly. Medicare covers a lot of fees pertaining to doctor's visits and some hospitalizations, depending what it's for. But a lot of the really big ticket costs, including that home-based health care if someone's in a facility those are all coming out of caregivers' and families' pockets. And then there's also a lot of extra costs that people don't realize, um, You know, paying for adult diapers when patients become incontinent, getting paying for transportation if it's needed to get them to and from a lot of doctor's appointments and treatments. There's also a financial toll a lot of families take because I spoke to some caregivers who had to stop working or reduce their hours in work to take care of a loved one. So in addition to shelling out a lot of these expenses out of pocket, there's also a decrease in income that just kind of compounds the, you know, the financial strain that these people are under.
0: Kara, has that been the trend in recent years? Because we hear so often that, you know, Alzheimer's, the, the number of people diagnosed with Alzheimer's or other dementias will only increase um, in, in future years. You know, why, um, why is there not more assistance to pay for that care? When you think about the caregivers who are at home, they're not getting paid for taking care of their loved ones. Right. Um, they're saving the government a lot of money when they're not in a facility. So, I mean, what's been the trend?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when you mentioned, just to t- touch briefly on the um, increase in the number of patients that's predicted, currently there are about 74,000 people in Connecticut who have Alzheimer's, but that number is expected to go up to 80,000 by 2020. And for those 74,000 people in the state who have the disease, there are about 177,000 people in Connecticut caring for them, providing, you know, as you alluded to, 202 million hours of unpaid care on top of what they're paying for in facilities. Um, a, a person, woman that I spoke to at um, Quinnipiac University, who really follows the healthcare industry closely, says a lot of the problem is just the way that Medicare is structured and funded. Um, it's Medicaid actually, and not Medicare, that covers some of the expenses for people who qualify for facility-based care and home-based care. And as the woman I spoke to at Quinnipiac School of Business said, you essentially have to be a pauper to qualify for Medicaid the way that it's structured. So a lot of people are kind of you know above that income threshold to qualify for the help and unfortunately just left to put the bill on their own, which can be really costly. I mean, according to Alzheimer's Association, the cost for long-term care services, they average, you know, $220 a day for a semi-private room in a nursing home, and that's more than $80,000 a year just for the facility care alone. So it's really a huge burden on a lot of people.
0: I'm speaking with Kara Rosner. She's a reporter for Connecticut Health Investigative Team at CHIT.org. She did a recent story about um, the prevalence of Alzheimer's in our state and how often uh, people that are on Medicare, if a caregiver such as their loved one is taking care of them at home, there's a lot of expenses that that caregiver um, also has to shoulder. Can we talk a little bit about the the person that you profiled in your story, Kara, um, this woman that was taking care of her spouse? Yes,
1: Patricia Lowe of Ridgefield, um, who is wonderful to talk to and very, passionate about this issue and she's been caring for her 80 year old husband frank who was diagnosed in 2010 um, and she really worries about the expenses that they're going to have to face they they have decided a couple years ago she's caring for him in their home and they decided i think a little over two years ago to forego the medications and a lot of the doctor's visits he was doing and instead opted for more holistic treatments which they feel like has made a real difference Uh, and she really credits them making that decision with saving them money in the short term. But she says she attends support groups for Alzheimer's caregivers, and she knows what's coming down the pipeline, and expenses are only going to increase, and really worries. They've blown through their nest egg that they had spent years saving up. Uh, he's no longer working. She's not working. Her full job is really just caring for him, so it's been a tough time for them.
0: Um, can we talk a little bit more about um, how it all works, Kara, uh, in terms of, of, of the assets that people have? And so, um, again, if they're not... Um, you know, I guess the word you used was pauper, um, oftentimes, you know, people want to re- keep their house, right? So they spend yeah. their whole life working, they pay off their home, they hope that asset can go on to their children. But when something like this happens, it really puts them in a, in a tough spot.
1: It does. And Patricia Lowe, who I spoke to in my story, the woman in Ridgefield, said that she actually had an attorney recommend to her that she legally divorce her husband in order to get their, you know, the assets under her name, uh, which she's not doing. But, you know, it just goes to show kind of the extremes people are forced to go to in terms of, you know, I've heard of people moving assets into their children's name or into their um, spouse's name just to kind of get their own income level to a place where they can qualify for Medicaid and some of the additional financial help.
0: And that almost takes a lot of uh, future planning. So I know that the government um, often does a look back for so many years. And so depending on if somebody um, is diagnosed recently, and they just haven't thought about it, um, often, you know, their their assets can't be transferred over as easily. um, So they, you know, they may end up losing um, some of those assets.
1: Yep, exactly. When I spoke to the Alzheimer's Association, they also said there's a a slight but emerging trend of more and more people being diagnosed in Connecticut and nationally, even at a slightly younger age. So, you know, I also spoke to a woman whose husband was diagnosed when he was right around 50. Um, So, you know, no one ever really foresees or expects something like this coming, but it can be be even more unprepared if you or your spouse is younger than the typical age group that this
2: usually affects.
0: I want to take a call. Uh, Claudio is calling from West Hartford. Claudio, you're on Where We Live.
2: Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Uh, Thanks for having this discussion today. It's so important. I uh, work with many caregivers across the state as uh, an advocacy director for AARP, and Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen this firsthand, how the struggle of family caregivers who want to provide for their loved ones uh, and do so at home. So I just wanted to share with your callers today and and your listeners at home uh, a couple resources that AARP has. Uh, One is aarp.org. Caregiving, and it's a go-to hub that provides some helpful tips, resources, information, and guides on how to go through the journey of caregiving and how to do it step by step, and ask the right questions and make the plans that often to relieve some of the anxiety. And um, the other thing I would mention is, in addition to the cost, uh, sometimes there's really a stress around the proper training. So we're asking family caregivers more and more to do a lot of the medical and nursing tasks that they may be uncomfortable or unable uh, to have the experience and background to do. So we were really pleased to work uh, with bipartisan group of legislators in Connecticut last year to get the CARE Act passed. And the CARE Act does a couple of things. Uh, One it allows people to designate a family member on entry into a hospital. Uh, secondly, if there's a family member designated, it provides advance notice of a discharge to the family members. And most importantly, the third piece is if we're going to discharge someone home and we're asking family members to take on certain medical tasks like wound therapy or injection or transfer, that there be an appropriate time to receive a demonstration, a training, and opportunity to engage in questions with a medical professional on discharge so that uh, the family member is prepared to take on those tasks in a way that's uh, helpful for their loved one when they return home.
0: All right, Claudio. Thank you for that link, and we'll put that up on our website too. But thank I, you. I appreciate your call. And Kara, just to go back to you before we head to break. Um, again, we we're talking about the prevalence of Alzheimer's and dementias um, in the state. Um, you know, uh, Claudio mentioned that the legislature passed this Care Act recently. Um, but I'm curious, any other things that you know of that the state is doing to to help this population, the aging population, and the people who care for them?
1: Yeah, there's nothing on the state level that I'm aware of, but I do know there's obviously a lot of attention and focus on potential fixes you know, or changes that can be made to the Medicare system on the federal level because politicians are very well aware of the financial toll this is taking, not only on families, but also on the Medicare system overall. There's a statistic from the Alzheimer's Association that total payments for health care, long-term care, and hospice care this year – are expected to top $236 billion for people with Alzheimer's and dementias, and about half of that is going to be paid by the Medicare system. Um, at this point, one in every five Medicare dollars is spent on Alzheimer's and dementia, and that's expected to rise to one in every three dollars by 2050. So it's unfortunately a, a problem in a disease that, at least in the short term, doesn't seem to be going away, and the financial impact really has a lot of different ripple effects.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Kara Rossner, a reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. You can read her story at CHIT.org. Thanks so much, Kara.
1: Thank you.
0: When we come back, we'll hear from caregivers of people living with Alzheimer's and other dementias. And later in the hour, we'll speak with a neuroscientist about the health impacts of caregiving. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about Alzheimer's and other dementias. It's a cruel disease, seeing your loved one robbed of his or her memory, among other health conditions. In the U.S., there are 5 million people who've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and one in three seniors will die from some type of dementia, according to the National Alzheimer's Association. Today, Where We Live, we're focusing on the caregivers of people with Alzheimer's. We want to know who supports them. Email us at wmpr.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me in studio now is uh, Julianne Ramia, Executive Director of Court's Memory Care Community in Avon and a leader of the Alzheimer's Support Group. Julianne, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Also in studio is uh, Catherine Frida, gerontologist, elder care consultant, and owner of Sage Solutions, LLC. Hi, Catherine. Hi, how are you? I'm doing mm-hmm. well. So I'll start with you, uh, Julie. So tell me about how you got involved with working um, with patients, uh, people with Alzheimer's and other dementias.
3: I actually uh, started back in 1998, 97, at Quinnipiac University, had a professor who uh, Alzheimer's was just really coming to the forefront. And my professor said, do you want to help with this research project investigating the impact of caregiving? for uh, individuals with Alzheimer's and the social, you know, the economic and social impacts. And that was it. It lit a fire. And I have been passionate about dementia care since
0: then. Well, there's a lot of science that has uh, evolved uh, in, in the last decade or so, and we'll get to that later in the show. But tell me about the work that you do at this memory care community in Avon. Who are the people that are there?
3: We have uh, people who come in with all different types of dementia. It could be Alzheimer's, Lewy body, Parkinson's, and uh, we take a family approach. We support the whole family. It's a difficult process making the decision for someone to come into a memory care community, uh, you, they all want to keep everybody at home for as long as possible. So when that time comes, it is a very difficult process. So we walk with them from the from the moment they uh, come in and view our community till the day that they move in to the day that the resident either passes away or has to move out.
0: And you're a leader of an Alzheimer's support group? I am,
3: yes. yes. So who are the people that, that attend these meetings? We have husbands wives we have nieces nephews you know friends who are caregiving for individuals uh, most of my support group happen to be family members of my residence but we have people from the community who are coming in and just looking for that sense of support from other
0: other individuals who are walking that same road so, talk, talk. You know, walk us through. Uh, you know, everyone's uh, story is different, mm-hmm. but you know, w- you know, how do families know when is the right time to, you know, have their loved one go into a a, a care facility like yours?
3: That is the sixty four thousand dollars question. Um, I, I always talk with my families, and I say, when safety is becoming an issue, if the person's starting to get lost, going outside the home and getting lost, if they're uh, behavior is such that the family member or caretakers are in jeopardy, that that is the time. As well as if the question's crossing your mind, it's probably a pretty good indication that you should look at a memory care community.
0: As I mentioned, Catherine Frieda is in studio with us. Uh, She's a gerontologist and elder care consultant. Um, I understand you also have experience as a caregiver.
4: I do. Um, and, you know, I it, my work informs my life and my life informs my work. So um, I'm one of those adult daughters. You know, the adult daughters tend to do most of the heavy lifting, not that we don't have some incredibly dedicated adult, adult sons, but typically it's an adult daughter. And I had this experience in my own family. Um, and it takes a village. It really takes a village as a caregiver. You know, my sister's um, in the Midwest and we had to, she parsed out the financial piece I did the medical, legal, and um, managing the care providers. My brother did all the handyman stuff. So, you know, it takes a village. You you know, it takes a lot of resources to help an older adult.
0: And it sounds like, again, with all of your family members, you're able to find a plan. Uh, But what about the person who may not have that support system in place, and and they see their parent or or their spouse changing before their eyes? I mean, that must go through quite an emotional um, uh, roller
4: coaster. It does, and we're geriatric care managers, so that's kind of where we come in. The phone call is, we're at a crossroads. We don't know what to do. We need an objective assessment. We need a plan. And so we'll come in and meet with the family, and we look at it very holistically in that we focus on the older adult, but we're very much... Looking at the spousal caregiver and what his or her needs may be, the uh, the adult children, the stress it's putting on them. So we create a comprehensive plan and recommendations, whether it be stay home and how we're going to manifest that, or perhaps make a move and how that will what that will look like.
0: And um, it's not just uh, the emotional stress. I mean, we were just talking with a reporter about just the financial. Uh, um, I hate to use the word burden, but it is because you're you're dealing with your own life and your own um, job and your family, and then you feel the need that you need to step in and, and care for your your elderly parent. Um, so, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Do you, how do you help them navigate that financial road too? Do you want to start, uh, Julie? The what we do, well, we are a private
3: pay. Most assist all assisted living in Connecticut just about is a private pay, um, but many individuals there they have long-term care policies so we' we'll, you know we kind of ask questions uh, was the spouse a vet? are they eligible for the aid and attendance program through the Veterans Association or the Veterans um, administration? Do they uh, have they reached out to the Alzheimer's Association? Many just need respite and there are some some respite programs. so we do try to help them ease the burden as much as we can. Uh, through those different funding sources, but there's it's limited you know we haven't I don't think we as a as a state as a society have realized just what an impact it is financially on these families to take care of somebody with dementia any you know so. I think we need to do a little bit
0: better job. And it's not an exclusive problem, right, Mm -mm. Catherine? Because, I mean, we were hearing the statistics from the Alzheimer's Association that one in three seniors will die from a type of dementia. And so it impacts a lot of people.
4: It impacts an incredible amount of people. And I couldn't agree with you more. You know, unfortunately, if you had, you know, $500,000 to your name, that could go extremely quickly. Um, And then you could be at the stage where you qualify for Medicaid benefits, in which case, you know, if you're in a skilled facility, for example, that would be borne by Medicaid. Um, But if you're home and you're private paying for care or you're in an assisted living facility and paying for care, you can run through your life savings in no time. Because this, particularly with the dementias, this disease is not necessarily a quick one. This could go on for 10, 15 years. We're talking about a lengthy, lengthy chronic progressive brain disease.
0: I think I read in um, Cara story um, that I think like a month, um, a year of uh, private care could be like
4: $80,000. At least. Yeah. Oh, yeah. easily. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a skilled facility, that's a low number. Yeah,
0: And you mentioned, uh, Julianne, about long-term uh, policies. Can you talk mm-hmm. about long-term care insurance and how 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 um, is that what it's called or, um you know mm-hmm. how common is that and is it ex- is it is it expensive is that why people don't do it it
3: well if you bought into it back in the nineties you have a chance of having a really good policy the insurance com- the insurance industry caught on relatively quickly that the expense of caring for someone in either in a skilled nursing facility or in an assisted living community uh, is quite expensive. So if, if you are looking at a, a policy nowadays, it's going to be uh, – may not have the coverage that some of the older policies have. But there's some really good ones out there, and, and I encourage families to read their policy if they have one and, uh, you know, see what the fine print says because a lot of times they will cover 100 percent of assisted living. And skilled nursing, if somebody needed needed that level of care, but we do here in Connecticut have the long term care um, insurance. The partnership, partnership, yes, thank you. And um, people can reach out to them, and they do have a, a variety of of uh, plans that they can refer an individual to. So.
0: Are you a caregiver of a loved one? You can join the conversation. Tell us how you handle uh, both the emotional and financial stress. I wanted to uh, take a call now. Molly, are you there? I am. Okay, here. Yes. Okay, you. Molly from Connecticut Community Care Inc. and it says that you've been a caretaker for both parents. Tell us about that yes, journey.
5: I'm the president of Connecticut Community Care Incorporated and I left your listeners think that I'm only talking the talk. I also walked the walk. I cared for my 103 year old dad a ninety three year old mom both of whom had dementia at home until they died um, and so i I deep understanding of these issues. I wanted to make a couple of comments about the various um, opportunities that Connecticut does provide and a previous um, speaker had said that the state wasn't doing much and I just wanted i didn't want to leave your audience feeling as hopeless as that would have made me feel. Um, And there are some absolutely outstanding programs that are funded through the state of Connecticut Department of Social Services. Uh, Your listeners would need to know the words, the Connecticut Home Care Program. That's pretty simple, the Connecticut Home Care Program. And that is a program that helps elders to stay in their homes as long as possible and avoid institutionalization as long as that's what they and their loved ones want is for them to stay at home. There are literally 14,000 people in Connecticut who are on the Connecticut home Care Program now. Not all of them have dementia, many of them do. Uh, A previous speaker talked about having to become a pauper to be on the state programs. Um, While there are situations where it certainly feels that way, I would also want to say that there are, um, in in some of these very specialized programs like the Connecticut Home Care Program, there are some different income and asset requirements than there are for the traditional Medicaid programs. And so I would really advise that your listeners um, find out about those programs in the event that their loved one might be eligible and right, the other thing I just wanted to assure you listeners, mm-hmm. there was a conversation in the beginning about people having to give up their homes, and I know Lucy, you were saying um, that it was, it was it was a sad thing when families thought they were going to be able to leave their home as part of their legacy to their children. i don't disagree with that, but I do know for a fact that spouses do not end up having to leave their homes. That just, there are very special laws that cover the transfer of a home from one spouse to another if one spouse needs to go on Medicaid. So I didn't want people to be okay. alarmed thinking that they would be losing their house if they turn to the state for
6: support.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, and Molly. For I, I, We want to take some more calls, but if you could just... Um, I know you have an email address for our producer. If you could just email us some of that information, we'll be sure to put that up on our website. So I do appreciate your call. I did want to get back to State Representative uh, uh, Joseph Sarah. Uh, Representative uh, Sarah, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you tell us about the work that you're doing as co-chair of the Aging Committee and how that relates to uh, our population of people who have Alzheimer's and other dementias?
7: Well... You know, obviously you're you're aware the Aging Committee takes a whole gamut of uh, senior issues. Uh, in terms of uh, what our main goal is, we call it Aging in Place. We're trying to keep seniors in their home as long as possible before they have to seek some other alternative care. Uh, so that's the, the bottom line for uh, at least the philosophy the state of Connecticut has embraced.
0: Representative Sarah, I'm sorry, I think a lot of people may not know what the Aging Committee does. Could you tell us about the work that you do?
7: Well, all the uh, issues that involve uh, uh, seniors, aging, any aging issues, senior issues, uh, whether it's Alzheimer's, whether it's uh, uh, all types of home care, uh, any of those issues uh, come before our committee, and we hold, obviously, we hold the hearings and various uh, people who... Uh, Support all the aging issues. The various organizations will come and testify either for or against whatever type of legislation is being uh, proposed. Uh, That's basically what we do. We'll take uh, all these calls involving uh, uh, senior issues. We're like a clearinghouse uh, with all the other agencies.
0: Uh, We heard a caller earlier in the show uh, from the AARP mentioned the CARE Act. What are some other, is there legislation that uh, the Aging committee will be proposing or other things that residents should know about if they're caregivers of where they can get assistance?
7: Well, I think for me, uh, my experience up in Hartford has been it's best, if you don't have an answer, is to call your state representative or your state senator, and he and his staff, or he or she and her, the staff will get the answers and direct uh, the caller to exactly uh, who he or she should be contacting for for assistance in whatever the issue is that they're calling uh, uh, their state representative or senator about. And especially today with the, the issue of the budget and changes that are taking place and, and layoffs and all that, Personally, I would uh, call either your representative or your state senator with whatever issue you have regarding uh, senior issues.
0: And then you mentioned uh, with uh, the budget crunch uh, um, from the last year and in the future years, I know that there is the legislature's aging committee that you say hold uh, hearings and consider legislation. There's also the uh, recently consolidated uh, legislative commission on women, children, and the elderly. There's also the Department of Aging. So lots of different places to um, provide support. Is there enough support for um, the aging population and their families?
7: Well, quite frankly, uh since this is all new, I'm looking forward to uh, dealing with the, with the new setup, uh, how it works at this point. I, I don't know because I have no experience uh, because of the changes that were just made in this past year's budget. Uh, hopefully, uh, we can still provide the services for our senior population that we have been in the past. But we'll see as this unfolds. Uh, this next session.
0: All right. Well, I want to thank State Representative Joseph Sarah co-chair of the Legislature's Aging Committee. Uh, Today, we're talking about caregivers uh, who uh, take care of loved ones with Alzheimer's and other dementias. You can join the conversation. Coming up, we're going to have a conversation with a cognitive neuroscientist, but I do want to take another call. Jane from Haddam. Jane, you're on Where We Live.
8: Hi there. I'm calling because my mom, she's 89, she has mild dementia, but physically she's not able to get around really well. I sold my business in California to come out here and take care of my mom. She was in her home for a while. I kept asking, what are the programs? She made too much money. Mm -hmm. Then I got her into a beautiful assisted living facility where I had to sell her house to supplement her uh, income that she was getting. She is a former state employee her whole life. And she had a fall, went into the hospital. They recommended at the... um, the uh, rehab facility that she needs 24 hour care seven days a week and I was providing through myself I was paying for private aids at her assisted living facility four hours a day and I was about to up it and they told me nope, that's not enough she had to then I had I ran out of choices she had to go into the nursing home I had to go through all her money because she had to be a pauper to be able to be there no longer could be in the, her assisted living. I have her cat. And now in the first two weeks she was there, she fell twice. I called the Ombudsman in Connecticut. I called the Department of Aging. I called everybody. And the Ombudsman told me what constitutes 24 hour care in a Connecticut facility is 1.9 hours a day. And I said to her, so my four hours a day, it's What is considered 24-hour care? And she said, absolutely. Mm. And I'm here to tell everybody, if you think it's anything else but about making money, you are mistaken. You are Mm. absolutely mistaken. It is all about money. They upped my mother's assisted living apartment $1,000 when she left. So that's, that's what I'm dealing with now. And we went through all her money to make her, you know, to be able to go on to Title 19 and now we have no options, and I have called everybody. I've spoke to her, uh, what I thought was a geriatrician. They don't know about help. It, 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 it's an, a very, very difficult system, and, and that's all I have to say, and I'm going to try to reach out to some of these people on the program today <laughs> because – when I do, they're like, sorry, there's not a lot you can do.
0: Well, Jane, before you before you go, mm-hmm. I wanted to, you know, we just had a state representative on asking about, I asked him about some of the programs and assistance that is provided as a caregiver, as someone who's mm-hmm. dealing with this with your mother. I mean, what do you need? You know what?
8: I would have needed, I kept asking for counsel. I had moved from, back from California. I wasn't, you know, familiar with, with what was going on. I said, what are the programs? What are my mother's options? We had social workers there and they kept saying, your mom has makes too much money, you know, her pension and her social security. And, and every time I would ask, well, what can I do? What can I do? It always came down to there's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that is the truth. They said, you have to go through, you have to, they call it paying down, getting rid of all her money. So my mother who worked for the welfare department from the time she got out of high school, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional all the way you know till she retired worked and saved and we just had to go through all her money nothing there's no house for anybody we had to spend down all her money and now she's in a nursing home where she gets you know 1.9 hours a day with an aide and by the way the aides they make maybe 10 or 12 dollars an hour i was paying our private aide 25 dollars an hour and and they they Keep their costs down in these nursing homes by not paying the aides a lot and not having a lot of aides in there because they're about making money.
0: Well, I want to thank you. Thank you for calling, Jane. And uh, you know, I, I wish you good luck. And I want you to stay. I want you to just continue um, listening because I want to ask uh, our two guests in studio about your story, um, Catherine. I saw you, um, you know, nodding your head when you heard. Um, Jane's story about her mom and falling in, in in the in the nursing facility. I mean, how can someone like Jane and other caregivers get the help they need where they don't feel like they're, you know, sacrificing um, so much?
4: There are just no easy answers, unfortunately. Um, one thing I do want to add, and Germaine to this, is that um, a good elder law attorney is worth their weight in gold. Um, and this, you know, in Jane's case, maybe she didn't have time to do some of the planning, but um, very often, their counsel, even if they're not going to make um, productive planning steps because it might not fit into the the time frame, their advice can be um, it's it's just golden. It's just golden. So I really encourage people to seek out an elder law attorney. Um, you know, Jane's in a tough spot. Uh, advocacy for her mom, unfortunately, she's probably going to have to be the one to be hands-on in the facility watching out. It's the squeaky wheel kind of thing. Um, when, when the staff knows that someone's really there and observing and advocating, things t- tend to get done in a more timely manner.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're speaking about caregivers of of those who have Alzheimer's and other dementias. We're getting a few calls. We just want to ask you to to be patient. We'll get to you, and we're going to get to a break now. When we come back, we'll hear from a caregiver again and from a researcher at Emory University who studies Alzheimer's and the impact on caregivers. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchal. Today, we've been talking about Alzheimer's and other types of dementias and the people who take care of them, their caregivers. In studio with me is Julianne Ramia, Executive Director of Arden Court's Memory Care Community in Avon and leader of an Alzheimer's support group. Also, Catherine Frieda, a gerontologist, elder care consultant, and owner of Sage Solutions LLC. We're getting a tweet from a listener who writes How can this be the best country in the world if we don't take care of our elderly? And that is the question. Uh, Before we go to our our next guest, I wanted to just take a quick call. Uh, Jim from Windsor Locks, you're on Where We Live.
9: Hi, how are you? I just wanted to tell you I had a similar experience as Jane did. I'm crying my eyes out because I dealt with my dad for nine years. I want to offer one thing to those people that are dealing with an Alzheimer's patient that most people don't understand. The story is exactly the same as Jane's. Okay, the only thing was is that my father accidentally dialed 911 one day, okay, and then about three months later he was um he was out walking he'd liked to walk around the neighborhood and somebody said oh, it 's getting cold i 'll give you a ride home and He got in the car and he couldn 't remember his, his his street address. The house was all proofed there was nothing you know he could not get hurt, but I would leave him, and i 'd come home at at night to take care of him. And uh, that second 911 call, because the guy said, I got a guy in the car and he doesn't know where he's, he lives triggered the, uh, uh, a call to the the, the uh, senior services in the state of Connecticut, and I got that same phone call that said, you are going to provide 24-hour, 7-day-a-week care for him. Mm-hmm. Now, the ironic thing about that is that in the eight years that I took care of him, he was perfectly happy. We had no problem. He was staying at home. The only thing I could have had was a little help, you know what I mean, for, you know, like the time I got to run off on something, you know, run an errand, this and that. If I had somebody that could come in for like a couple, three hours, Never mind about the mental decay it did on me. Mm-hmm. But here's the the point: I put him in. Uh, we had a. We ended up putting him into the into the home. The same situation, and within a month he fell. Mm-hmm. He never fell in eight years, but first year in the home he falls, and he ended up with a break broken hip, and he passed away. So, the system's broken.
0: I'm sorry to hear that, Jim. Um, it sounds like the Department of Social Services and, and other state programs could give you and other caregivers more help.
9: Yes, I mean, uh, we, you know, we went through the, I, I, I don't I say this in the neighborhood, where, I mean, we called them the Polish ladies, okay? We we started with them, we had, you know, little tiny help. You didn't really need a lot of help, you just needed key help. You know, sometimes if just somebody could come in, like, on a, uh, on a on a Saturday afternoon so I could get my head cleared, you know, so that I could come back to this, you know, just maybe 10 hours a week, you know, just to get a break, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Well, I appreciate your call, Jim, and thank you for for sharing a little bit of your story. I want to go now to uh, our, our newest guest, Whitney Wharton, a cognitive neuroscientist and assistant professor of neurology at Emory University. Whitney, welcome to where we
10: live. Thank you for having me.
0: You know, part of the reason we wanted to bring you on, um, Whitney, is that, you know, so often we hear about uh, this network of caregivers um, and they're, they're trying really hard and there's a lot of stress. But who's supporting the caregiver? Can you talk about it from um, your background of what this does to caregivers, this emotional and, and this emotional stress, this financial stress?
10: sure um so as you mentioned i'm a I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and a i'm a researcher I'm a clinical investigator, so I study people and um what I study is uh individuals who have a parent with Alzheimer's disease um, we do a whole host of clinical testing um, we look at genetics, we look at um, nutrition we look at exercise we look at psychological stress um we look at biological and physiological indices like high blood pressure, inflammation, all of these things tend to be um, unfortunately off the charts for adult children who are caring for their parent with Alzheimer's disease. Um, so what we're trying to do is really hone in on um, modifiable risk factors. So things that we know we can change. So we can change, you know, easily blood pressure. We can give information about nutrition, exercise, hopefully try to alleviate stress um, through programs uh, such as those that were, that were discussed earlier in the program. Um, and really, you know, just giving the caregivers a voice to be able to, um, you know, express their feelings, you know, tell them that it's okay to ask for help um, but clinically, we, we try to look at, uh, because unfortunately we don't yet have a cure for Alzheimer's, we try to look at these early biological markers and see who goes on to develop Alzheimer's themselves and who doesn't. Because unfortunately, there is a large genetic um, contribution to, to Alzheimer's and people who have a parent are more at risk for the disease themselves.
0: So they're the ones that are taking care of their parents with Alzheimer's and other dementia. But if they're not taking care of themselves, that will then negatively impact them even further beyond just being predisposed to Alzheimer's. Could it could it be more early onset Alzheimer's?
10: No, actually, there's um, you know there's, there's a large um, population of literature showing that um, people who have a parent, um, particularly a mother, with Alzheimer's disease are more likely, not just genetically, but more likely for some unknown, maybe biological etiology to go on to develop Alzheimer's, Um, what I specifically study is the vascular contribution, so high blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, um, all of these things, but, you know, these things are caused not just by genetics, but Mm -hmm. these things are caused by lifestyle, and if you are a caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's disease, you don't have time to exercise. You know, you're not worried about your nutrition. You don't go to the doctor regularly. Um, you don't have time to, you know, kind of step away, as, as the gentleman said who, who just called in last. Um, you know, he doesn't have time to run an errand, let alone kind of step aside and say, okay, what am I going to do for myself? And we really don't know what the long-term psychological and um, physiological effects of caregiving result in. Um, but it's for sure probably high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, high levels of inflammation. All of these things are caused by you know, th- these behavioral daily activities that unfortunately, um, if you don't have respite, are, are nothing new you know, for your caregivers listening.
0: Uh, Whitney, I saw a statistic that 64% of caregivers die before the person with dementia does.
10: I've also seen that statistic. Um you know, and that's probably more more spousal related because a lot of people um, who have Alzheimer's disease specifically, their spouse takes care of them. Um, but for the adult children, you know, like I said, because we don't have a cure, I'm, we're trying to go further and further um, and prevent Alzheimer's disease before we have to cure it. So we're interested in kind of these early middle age changes and seeing if there is a either lifestyle or, um, you know, pharmaceutical intervention that we can Um, we can give them during middle age, which is the time that we know the neuropathology, uh, you know, the brain changes of Alzheimer's actually begins, which is middle age. Mm
0: -hmm. And advice for caregivers, you know, ways that they can stay healthy?
10: Sure. Um, You know, number one, I would say make sure, I mean, during middle age, particularly for women, this is a time of our life when, um, you know, our blood pressure is going to increase. Um, there's lots of stuff going on with our body during during the menopausal transition. Um, if you have a high blood pressure, make sure that those levels are in check. Uh, I, re- I just read a an article the other day saying that um, even people that are on a blood pressure medication, they don't take them regularly. So percent only 37% of individuals who are on a blood pressure medication actually have controlled blood pressure. So make sure you're going to the doctor. Make sure you're taking care of yourself um, physically, first of all. And then, you know, ask for help. Um, you know, particularly for women, we grow up... Uh, you know, taking care of our children. Um, We're kind of lifelong caregivers because as soon as our our children get into high school and college, um, a lot of times we're then taking care care of our parents. So if you're not taking care of yourself and making sure that you ask for help from neighbors, from your community, don't be afraid, you know. Um, There are services out there, but also just to friends and family members. If you need three hours you know, try to find something that you can do to run your errands, but also just to have time to do anything for yourself, whether that's go to church, um, take a walk, go to yoga. I mean anything um, that you can do to kind of center yourself and and take a break because it's also good for the care recipient. It's also good for your parent to get away from you for a little <laughs> bit because the just the dynamic of the caregiver care recipient you know, parent-child dynamic changes. And that's, that's that in itself is very stressful.
0: I want to take a quick call. Lisa from Meriden. Lisa, you're on Where We Live.
6: Oh, hi. Um, my name is Lisa. Lisa uh, I'm actually an elder law attorney in New Haven. And I just wanted to correct a couple of the things that were said earlier about people being, having too much income or earning too much to get the benefit of certain programs. Um, I would say that the programs right now, they're really complicated and it's, It's important to try to get um, information, really detailed information, from somebody who's knowledgeable. But the the important takeaway piece is that for the Medicaid program and even for other programs that are not strictly Title 19 that are part of the Connecticut Home Care Program, which can provide those extra hours of care on all different types of situations for people, um, there is a mechanism to deal with the problem of having too much income, and it's called a pooled trust, and I have an article, if you Googled what the heck is a pooled trust, you would get it explained to you. Basically, it's, it's kind of a, a legal tweak that the state is fine with that allows you to tap, set up this trust, and the extra income goes into the trust, and then the person qualifies for any of the programs that are based that are restricted, that might be restricted if your income is too high. So, um, So that's one very important thing the other thing is there's so many different tools people can use they can get a reverse mortgage to try to get some more money for care and having that money won't even count against you for these Mm. programs it's just that you know the devil is in the details people really need to at an early point get information um not just from the state which i think sometimes oversimplifies Try to find, I would really say, you know, not to be self-serving, find some elder law attorney that has experience in it. Um, but when you know about the pool of trust, at least that would help some people know that they could get care with the home care program,
0: even if the income is high. Well, thank you for that, Lisa. And we'll be sure to Google that and put that up on our website. So I appreciate your call. I just want to turn back to our in-studio guests. Um, you know, Catherine, we did hear from you earlier about the importance of a, a great elder care attorney. Some takeaways uh, for our caregivers who are listening today. I
4: think... You know, we all think we're going to live forever. We all think it's not going to happen to us or a loved one. I think planning is key, and that includes advanced directives, um, you know, appointing the appropriate people to act on your behalf if you're unable. Um, I I think that um, the youth culture makes us feel like something like this could not happen when we're 65. It surely can. So when, when we work with families, um, we look at the financials, the insurance policies, everything to see how you can reasonably plan for the future. So I think recognizing that um, it could happen to you and your family is key.
0: I want to turn back to uh, Julianne Ramia from uh, Arden Court's Memory Care Community in Avon. We heard from the researcher at at Emory University about the importance of of caregivers keeping um, themselves healthy Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's just so much at stake, especially if they're predisposed to Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, and
3: and I would encourage uh, the listeners out there, get involved in a support group uh, for sure. A lot of times they'll say, I don't have time. But that one hour a week, a, a month, it, there's so many resources and so much comfort that my, my families find in that support group. Um, I encourage them to do that.
0: We're almost out of time. Thank you so much. Julianne Ramia and Catherine Frida in studio. Also to Whitney Wharton, cognitive neuroscientist and assistant professor of neurology at Emory University. We're going to continue this conversation on our website, WMPR.org. I'm sorry, where we live at WMPR.org. Thanks so much for our guests.